Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast. Today, we are speaking with two experts about human trafficking, Dr. Catherine Gomez and Katie Gotch. We recognize that this topic may be difficult for some of you. Please remember that you can always turn the episode off and listen later, or even listen with a friend. My name is Dr. Alyssa Ackerman. And I am Dr. Alexa Sardina. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Fear. Catherine C. Gomez currently serves as the Director of Human Trafficking Intervention for the Florida Department of Juvenile Justice. She holds a Ph.D. in Public Affairs from the University of Central Florida. She has served Florida since 2006 as a juvenile probation officer, trainer, researcher, and senior administrator. She specializes in working with juvenile justice-involved youth who have experienced human trafficking, youth charged with sexually related offenses, youth who identify as part of the LGBTQI community, and high-profile multi-jurisdictional cases. Katie Gotch has worked in the field of sexual abuse prevention for over 20 years as a clinician, evaluator, trainer, educator, and in the development of evidence-informed public policy. She currently maintains a private practice, Integrated Clinical and Correctional Services, which provides specialized clinical and consultation services related to adults with sexual behavior problems and other forms of abusive and violent behavior. She is a clinical member and public policy executive board member for ATSA, the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers, former board member and public policy advisor for the Oregon ATSA, and advisory board member and former public policy and engagement action team co-chair for the NPEIV, which is the National Partnership to End Interpersonal Violence. She frequently provides training to correctional agencies, treatment providers, policymakers, and other community partners on sexual offense-specific management and treatment, static and dynamic risk, public policy, public engagement, and related topics. And we are just so excited to have both of you on with us today. Uh, I know that you two work very closely together. Um, so, you know, thank you both for being with us today. Um, I just wanted to mention, you know, it's a really small world and small field that we work in. Um, last uh, season on the podcast, uh, we had David Prescott on, uh, and I had been on, you know, the, the webinars that you know, he does for Safer Society. And then we saw that the two of you had done an episode with him. Uh, and so it's just such a small world. That's actually how we reached out to you was after we uh, saw that you had done a webinar with David. Um, so we're just so excited to have you here today. Awesome. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I am as well. Thank you very much. Catherine, we wanted to start by asking you, um, you know, sort of about your work and how you came to this work. Sure. So, so yeah, so as you heard in my bio, I currently serve as the Director of Human Trafficking Intervention, but that's just the most recent position that I've held within the Florida Department of Juvenile Justice. Prior to this, I um, started my career working as a juvenile probation officer and then moved up into a senior juvenile probation officer position. And part of that um Part of that position means that you take on some of the more specialized cases, some of the more difficult cases, challenging cases, maybe cases that have media involvement or other needs beyond your general run-of-the-mill probation case. And that was how I got introduced to working with juveniles who had committed sex offenses or um, juveniles who were involved in many different kinds of systems or agencies or had cases that spanned many different jurisdictions across Florida. And 
through my through my work working with juveniles who have been charged with sex offenses, I saw that the conversations in the treatment community with all of the clinicians that I worked alongside, they were starting to to shift a little bit, and there was a new population of individuals that were starting to come into sex offense specific treatment. And those were individuals who had been charged with human trafficking related offenses, specifically sex trafficking related offenses. And through those conversations and trainings I received through my work, I started to work more with individuals who had experienced trafficking. I started to understand more of what was going on. And, um, and I started to incorporate some of the anti-trafficking work into my general everyday work as a, a probation officer. And then um, as my career kept on going, then now I serve as the director of human trafficking intervention. But my, my, my beginnings in this field were as a sex offense specific probation officer. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between human trafficking and sex trafficking? Sure, happy to. So human trafficking is a really broad term, and a lot of folks use the term human trafficking and sex trafficking interchangeably, but they're really two different terms. Human trafficking is a broad, overarching term that encompasses sex trafficking, labor trafficking, adults, children, other kinds of less common trafficking like um, criminal activity or baby selling or organ removal or uh, any other kinds like that. But typically the, the most common categories are sex trafficking and labor trafficking. So human trafficking is the big overarching term. Sex trafficking is one specific type that involves the use of somebody's body in some kind of a commercial sex capacity. Thanks for clarifying that. I think that even amongst criminologists, there's a lot of confusion about those terms and, and the, the differences or similarities um, between the two. I was also wondering, sort of in that vein, what are some of the common myths or misunderstandings around these types of offenses that you have noticed in your experience? Oh, goodness. Do we have enough time? Um, <laughs> sometimes the, the myths can get a little overwhelming sometimes. But uh, one, of the, one of the easiest myths to clear up is just the, the terminology confusion with human trafficking versus sex trafficking. And if we're going to talk about human trafficking, what exactly are we talking about? Are we discussing more of a labor piece of this, more of a sex piece of this? What, what exactly is the conversation we're talking about? Uh, human trafficking, a, a big myth that we hear all the time if they're talking about human trafficking is that um, people have to be moved from point A to point B. Uh, people are trafficked across a border. People are trafficked from city to city. People are trafficked around the country. And sure, there are people who are trafficked who are moved, but trafficking does not necessarily have to involve any kind of movement anywhere. Same thing with moving people across a border. There may be trafficked people who move across a border, but the movement across a border is not the trafficking. If we're talking about someone who is being smuggled across a border, that may be a term that we're looking for when we're talking about folks moving across the border uh, illegally or illegally. But smuggling is a crime against a country. Trafficking is a crime against a person. There's a different kind of victim in that situation. So um, so that's something that we, we have to address pretty often just because folks are confused over what what the terms mean and what does it mean when folks are, are moving and does that necessarily have to be trafficking? No, not necessarily. The other thing is there are so many urban legends and myths that are out there that I wish would calm down. So many myths about uh, online shopping where children are getting shipped in with furniture. So many myths about um, individuals who maybe had someone follow them in a store or some other kind of shopping environment and they were afraid or some urban legends about zip ties or car seats on the side of the road or so many different kinds of urban legends that make the rounds every so often and I receive questions and tips and information and and requests to provide training to really just debunk some myths that happen and address maybe some urban legends, maybe send a few links to some articles that indicate that those urban legends have no basis. But um, trafficking just doesn't really look like that. It looks a whole lot more like domestic violence situations. It looks a lot more like personal relationships that have gone wrong. It looks more exploitive. It's a little bit more insidious than just a zip tie on a 
a car window or something like that. Another myth that I would love to, to clear up once and for all is that human trafficking might involve abduction, and in some cases it does involve abduction, but most human trafficking, both uh, human trafficking in the larger sense, as well as labor trafficking and sex trafficking in particular, most of those cases simply don't involve any kind of abduction. It's more of a development of a relationship, more of a grooming situation, maybe a response to a job opportunity that's advertised. There's more kinds of uh, there's many different kinds of ways to get somebody into a trafficking situation that doesn't need to involve abduction. So I wish we could move away from from that particular that particular narrative simply because it sure does it happen absolutely. Is it the most common way that trafficking happens? Absolutely not. And I wish we could clarify that once and for all. And finally, I would have to say that um, as people get more and more aware of human trafficking and sex trafficking in particular, there is confusion over the terms force fraud and coercion, where force fraud and coercion are key terms related to human trafficking in that they describe some of the mechanisms in which victims of trafficking are recruited and then kept in the trafficking situation against their will, even when maybe on the surface it looks like they might be able to leave or allowed to leave. But especially in the realm of juveniles and children who are sexually exploited, and the term for that is commercial sexual exploitation of children, or CSEC for short, because we all love acronyms, especially in the, the term, in the type of trafficking that's CSEC related, Force, fraud, and coercion is not as much a factor. Uh, it doesn't need to be proven in order for trafficking to take place. The simple act of a minor being engaged in the commercial sex industry is an indication of trafficking. Force, fraud, and coercion does not have to be proven. So force, fraud, and coercion are useful concepts to discuss trafficking with adults. They're not as useful to discuss trafficking with children because they simply don't apply. So as folks get more and more training on human trafficking and they learn the key words of the force, fraud, and coercion, I would love for folks to understand that those are important terms to know for adults, but not as critical for juveniles who are being sexually exploited. Those, I'd say, are the, the largest myths I'd love to clear up, but there's there's probably two dozen more if we had all day. Well, thank you for that. I actually learned quite a bit. Um, yeah, as Alexa was saying, you know, even among criminologists, uh, there's often a lot of confusion. And we are two people who study sexual harm and sexual violence. And I still learned so much just listening to you uh, bust some myths. So I guess the next question that I would have would be, you know, speaking specifically about sex trafficking, what is it that you would want our listeners to know? Like, what is the most important thing for our listeners to know? I would say the most important thing for your listeners to know is simply that sex trafficking is happening all around us. It's not limited to a hotel industry or a travel industry or some kind of nightclub industry or even out there or even out there on the streets with individuals who are out there that appear to be engaged in the process of, prost of prostitution. That's not uh, not always what sex trafficking really looks like and it's it's everywhere but just because it's everywhere means that every time we see going back to those myths and and uh, myth busting doesn't mean that it's happening right there in aisle number two in your favorite retail establishment the the items that we really need to look out for and that i want folks to be able to take away with them today is that sex trafficking oftentimes is a an end point of an unhealthy and exploitive relationship that started developing long before the actual trafficking took place. It may be an unhealthy friendship that developed over an online game, for example, or it might be a romantic relationship that started in real life in the local neighborhood. It could be an online relationship that started through one of the numerous websites or apps where people meet one another and spend time together and get to know one another. It could be an out outcropping 
or something that came out of a labor trafficking situation where someone who is being financially exploited through some kind of working arrangement is vulnerable to other kinds of exploitation simply because of the vulnerability they're all already experiencing in their workplace. So so the, the takeaway I would say for everyone is to have some idea that vulnerability is the key here. Vulnerability and unhealthy relationships and being able to recognize someone who could be exploitive and try to and try to teach you as the potential trafficking victim or your children or family members or anyone that you care about to teach them on what to look for in healthy relationships and how to how to have an idea if somebody that you're talking with maybe um maybe is trying to exploit you in some way shape or form so i would want that to be a takeaway and the other takeaway that I would say is that I would be absolutely remiss if I didn't mention the National Human Trafficking Hotline, because the National Human Trafficking Hotline serves to take reports of possible trafficking and provide some information, but it serves as an excellent resource for individuals who call up that need help. So the National Human Trafficking Hotline phone number is 888-3737-888. And it serves as both a report taking mechanism, but also as a resource mechanism. So uh, during the course of this podcast or through other kinds of anti-trafficking educational opportunities that you seek, if you come to realize that maybe something you've experienced might be trafficking or something that you've observed might be trafficking, go ahead and give a call out to the national hotline. And if it involves any kind of child or children, they're going to pass it right down to, to us in the child welfare and juvenile justice side of things to look into from that point on. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention the hotline. There's tons of excellent resources they can point you to in your area. Thank you so much for that. And I'm kind of, I have two questions now, but I'm going to ask you the, the first one, which is kind of based on some of what you were um, just saying. And I realized that we haven't talked about prevalence at all and sort of the numbers around that. So if you could give our listeners an idea of how much uh, sex trafficking is actually taking place. Um, in the U.S. at any given year um, or period, I think that would be helpful. And also some of the very specific risk risk factors for victimization as well. Mm-hmm. Sure. So there's some, well, I wish I could give you excellent, excellent numbers as far as national trafficking numbers or international trafficking numbers. The problem with that is that there's a very decentralized data collection process as far as each different law enforcement agency collects data slightly differently. Different social service agencies collect their own types of information. And lots of different folks have different kinds of admission criteria on what kinds of of trafficking victims they'll serve or what kinds of um, trafficking they work with. So really good, solid prevalence numbers are really elusive. But we we do have an idea based on numbers coming out of the National Human Trafficking Hotline of some of the, the, the key ideas that we have around the country. So we know that the most common types of trafficking are the broad categories of sex trafficking and labor trafficking. We know that it's not just sex trafficking with no um, with no labor trafficking happening. We know which states are some of the more prevalent and less prevalent. But we also know that sometimes the prevalence estimates go right along with what the population numbers are for a particular particular area. So, for example, Florida tends to rank third in calls to the National Human Trafficking Hotline, but we're also the third largest state. And that goes back to the the point that I made a little bit ago that trafficking is really happening everywhere. And we can go to different human trafficking trainings, we can have different human trafficking conversations, and you'll hear lots of different folks talk about, well, my area is number one, or this area is number three, or we're at the very bottom of every single ranking level. We don't have any trafficking around here. Well, you may not have any that you know of, but it is happening. And every area can probably be listed as number one or number two, or at the end of the line, depending on what's happening. So we know that it's a multi-billion dollar industry. 
we know that individuals who are exploited are exploited over and over and over again because unlike guns or drugs or some of the other popular products that are being sold, a person can be sold over and over and over through every day they go to work or every day that they participate in a commercial sex act. They can be exploited over and over, whereas a gun or a drug can be sold once and then it's over. So we know it's multi-million dollars. We know that we can't exactly pull down some tax returns and figure out exactly the financial impact, but we know it's there. And I would, I would direct anyone, if they're interested, to go to the website for the National Human Trafficking Hotline, and you can pull down information about the prevalence numbers for the United States of America, but you can also pull down numbers state by state by state and see what are the most common types of trafficking in your area, common locations, common calls, where are they coming from, and you can pull down that information just for your area. Thank you for that. And we'll definitely put links to all that information um, on our site so people can take a look and see, you know, what's really going on in terms of trafficking in the areas in which they live. Um, And I think, again, another important part of it, which will help them better understand trafficking, is some of the risk factors for victimization. So can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Yes. And forgive me for neglecting it the first time around. Um, So... So what, what traffickers are interested in is vulnerability. And, and when we say traffickers, we're not necessarily talking about a shadowy third-party person who is uh, trying to develop a relationship and exploit somebody. A trafficker can be a, a family member. A trafficker can be a, a loved one, a trusted person, a coach, a someone who has, who has access and a trusted relationship with an individual. So the, the vulnerability is the key, and there's many different kinds of vulnerability. There may be young people who are having trouble at home and maybe they've run away from home and now are stuck out and about in the big world and don't quite have the resources that they need to take care of themselves and so they become dependent on individuals who might recognize and exploit that vulnerability and that lack of knowledge about the world. They could be individuals who are dealing with a substance use disorder where it's very difficult for them to function without a particular substance, and that that creates a lever of vulnerability for that person. Or someone who is struggling with a mental health challenge, or maybe has lower cognitive functioning abilities, or somebody who just has really limited social skills and doesn't quite understand the the key concepts of how to identify healthy individuals from unhealthy individuals, and someone who might be trying to exploit them. So, and Traditionally and typically, individuals who are part of more marginalized communities might have some additional vulnerabilities that are already built into to who they are and maybe their, um, their community of origin or family of origin. Uh, poverty is another huge key item that, uh, that can be exploited as a lever. So really anything that would make somebody more vulnerable to anything is going to make them more vulnerable to trafficking. And especially since we're talking more about sex trafficking today, I always try to make sure I keep labor trafficking in the conversation just because folks tend to, to forget about labor trafficking. But we are talking about sex trafficking today. Um, we also cannot forget about all the different people that this that this impacts. We talk a lot about young girls who are involved in trafficking and who are exploited through trafficking. But we really can't forget about all of the boys and male-identified youth and individuals who identify as part of the LGBTQI community. We can't forget about those young people simply because they might experience additional vulnerabilities to trafficking based on difficult situations that they have come from or maybe families that may be less accepting of who they are and that might not give them the kind of support that they need that could result in them being out on the streets. So, frankly, anything you can think of that would make that would make someone more vulnerable, though, those are the risk factors that we're looking for. Thank you for bringing that up, Catherine, because I think that the concept of males as victims is often overlooked. And interestingly, I was just reading a whole series on exploitation of people in authority of 
drug addicted young men and youth and how there were people who were there to help them who were actually exploiting them in this fashion. And so just thank you for bringing that up because while violence against women is obviously extremely important and a, a bigger percentage of what we see within the sexual violence arena, boys and men can also be victimized. And it is important that we remember that. Absolutely. Thank you, Katie. Um, and I guess, so the question that I was going to ask was sort of along those same lines. We know uh, from the sexual violence literature that LGBTQ people, and in particular, uh, trans and non-binary people, have incredibly high rates of sexual harm perpetrated against them. I think the numbers for trans people is one in two uh, experience sexual harm and sexual violence in their lifetime. Do we see the same uh, numbers with sex trafficking as we do with sexual violence, sexual harm more generally for trans and non-binary people? Or is there not enough data yet to support that? Well, the answer to that, which quite frankly, anyone who knows me will know exactly what I'm about to say next. The answer to that question is yes, no, kind of, sort of. And the the answer is yes, we do see that. And yes, there are a few studies that have been published that have looked at trafficking amongst the LGBTQI community, especially amongst the trans community, and have absolutely found that victimization rates and vulnerability to victimization are higher. Where I would say the kind of, sort of part of the answer is, is simply in limitations within data collection and limitations within um, the the criminal justice aspect of this. So there are many different ways to collect this kind of data and many different data systems do not yet collect detailed gender identity information to be able to really identify if the person that is a victim in this particular trafficking situation identifies as male, as female, as trans, as something different altogether. So it's a, a huge limitation and gap in the data that I wish I had more and better information to give a more nuanced answer, but I would love to see some data systems catch up. We spend a lot of time in the classes that we teach and in the trainings that we give on data and data collection and whatnot. So uh, it's, I guess, both uh, helpful and also hard to hear that the same things that we talk about in the general sexual harm space uh, is also happening in the trafficking space. Um, so we've talked some about risk factors for victimization. Katie, we want to turn to you now uh, and talk about your work. Um, so I will ask the same question that I asked Catherine, which is, how did you come to do work on trafficking? So I essentially became involved with perpetrators of domestic sex trafficking when I was working with Multnomah County Department of Community Justice. So my kind of career trajectory was I started as a sexual abuse specific clinician um, in the community when I was in grad school in Denver. And then I transitioned and I was working at the Massachusetts Treatment Center for Sexually Violent Persons. So that kind of in custody setting. And then I decided it was time to come back to the West Coast, which is where I'm from originally, even though I've done a lot of my schooling on the East Coast. And um, I took a position, a new position. So I had the opportunity to kind of start creating it in some ways as the clinical coordinator for the sex offender unit for parole and probation in Portland, Oregon. And part of that position, I had a counterpart. So my colleague, uh, Kurt St. Dennis, he was attached to our special supervision team, which was essentially our high violence, high psychopathy unit. And then I was attached to the sexual offender unit. I dislike using the term sex offender now. You notice I might pause a little bit as I say that, but that's the name of the unit. And what we always joked about is I was sex and he was violence and we had a heck of a lot of crossover. So we would evaluate some of the similar individuals. And what we started noticing experientially through our work in the early kind of 2000s, this would be mid 2000s, like 2005-ish, was we started seeing this population that were involved in sex trafficking. And so 
I became interested in this population because in most jurisdictions, or not most, I should say, in many jurisdictions, um, individuals who are convicted of sex trafficking type charges here in Oregon, where I'm located, it's compelling or promoting prostitution would be the legal name for it. But anything related to kind of those types of offense behaviors. In many jurisdictions, they're required to register as a sexual offender. <clears throat> Yet they do not present in the same way as individuals with traditional sexual offense behavior problems. And so I started digging into this and I realized we knew nothing about this population. When I started collecting my data, um, there was one, maybe two studies that had even looked at the quote unquote pimp at that time. I dislike that terminology because it's become such a kind of glamorized um, term within you know, our modern kind of culture. But that's truly who I'm talking about when I'm talking about perpetrators of domestic sex trafficking. Um, and so that's how I ended up kind of starting to collect data. And I started doing a little research on it because clinically I was seeing these individuals and I was recognizing that clinically they were presenting very differently than other populations with convictions for sexual violence and sexual harm. And so my whole focus is prevention. And we have to have an understanding of the psychological characteristics, the characterological facets, the etiology, the development of why someone would go into this or make the decision to traffic in others in order to create prevention strategies, whether they're primary prevention, so before someone gets hooked into that behavior, or tertiary prevention, where they may have already offended, but how do we assist them to not do it again. So that's kind of where all of my work came in and from that very front line, like working with these individuals, working predominantly with men. I have evaluated um, females as well, but the, the population I see is predominantly men. And it's also predominantly who's being caught by the system, because I do want to note that. Um, so in many ways, we could have a whole conversation about some of the system issues with regards to that. But um, yeah, so that's how I ended up getting involved in the domestic sex trafficking arena. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, a lot of what you said about understanding the characteristics of people who perpetrate, you know, these offenses, how they came to it, what their pathways were, what their background is. Um, and in that in relation to prevention efforts really resonates um, a lot with the work that Alyssa and I do um, around sexual harm, more generally speaking. Uh, but Katie, I'm also wondering if you can talk about some of the general characteristics um, of the folks that perpetrate sex trafficking. What have you found over the course of your work in this field? So I want to highlight some of what Catherine already spoke about. Um, these ideas of stranger danger, somebody abducting someone off the street corner or intentionally hooking someone on drugs to have them traffic for you and prostitute for you. Those concepts are few. And I mean, the reality of that is those instances happen few and far between. What we more often than not see is someone developing a relationship with someone and the trafficking stems from that. And one of the important things I think is overlooked within our discussions about domestic sex trafficking in particular, because that's really the, been the focus of my work and my research, is that it's not just one, someone is not just a trafficker or not a trafficker. We have a continuum of behaviors that we will see. So you have that far end, which is focused on mostly within media, in movies, the individual who is um, you know, trafficking a large number of individuals, they're utilizing extreme forms of violence and drug addiction to control people. That is not the most common form we see of sex trafficking. It's more likely you see an individual, as Catherine noted, they get involved in a relationship and it turns into much more of a 
Um, intimate partner violence tactics. You see a lot of those tactics in play in these relationships. And oftentimes the individual who we would identify as the survivor or the victim, they may not even view themselves in that way because of the way that the relationship has developed and the level of um, entrenchment within that relationship and those dynamics between. So not only does it not, it's more often someone known to the individual being trafficked, um, it also can manifest in different ways. So there is a difference between the individual who is intentionally going out and attempting to recruit through the facade of a relationship, boyfriend, girlfriend, and then that individual, that survivor becomes part of a number of people they are trafficking. There's a difference between that individual who is our highest risk. And the research has shown that very charismatic, manipulative behavior style is the highest risk for victimization and harm towards those that they are trafficking. But I also see cases where it truly is an intimate partner relationship where maybe the male partner is just more parasitic in their interactions. There's no violence. There's no necessarily coercion involved. And the significant other is involved in sex work. And they may be convicted for driving their significant other to a date with a John or something along those lines. And that individual presents a different kind of risk for future behaviors than the first individual. So part of it is understanding that there's a continuum of behaviors that are all encapsulated under this concept of domestic sex trafficking. And we will see different risk and different intervention needs depending on those factors that are present. You know, again, as I've said you know, more than once, I think, as we've been talking today, uh, it sounds so similar in many ways to the work that we do in general sexual harm spaces. Um, so my sense is that your answer to the next question will also have me thinking that way. And that is, you know, there are different risk factors uh, ba based on this continuum so I'm assuming that there are different ways that people become involved in domestic sex trafficking. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about different pathways um, to this type of behavior. Definitely. Um, some of the pathways I have seen through my work and through the clients that I've worked with and evaluated um, that have been involved both as um, a survivor at times. I have seen survivor to perpetration occur. It's not as common with males. I see that more common with females who are then, you know, involved in the recruitment or the trafficking aspect. Um, so you have some pathways. That's one pathway is someone begins as most often a female um, begins as being trafficked and then moves up the ranks of whatever system or individuals that they're working with to actually recruiting and trafficking themselves. You see a lot of ACEs, a lot of adverse childhood experiences, um, similar with all individuals involved within the criminal justice, foster care, all of our systems. We see a lot of childhood adversity and similar experiences like that. And one of the most common ACEs from my research on perpetrators of domestic sex trafficking was being removed from the home. More than half of my sample had been removed from the home as a juvenile. And that could have been due to criminal behavior or CPS involvement, so child protective services involvement. So what does that speak to? That speaks to environments that are um, oftentimes not very supportive or healthy for creating resilient and um, well-balanced adolescents and adults. Um, so you see a lot of those childhood adversity. Parental substance abuse was another huge one, as well as physical abuse and neglect that you would see. And so similar to what um, Catherine had mentioned earlier, poverty is a huge driver. 
the socioeconomic aspect of this is a huge driver, both with international sex trafficking and domestic sex trafficking. One of the interesting things, um, kind of backpedaling a little bit, but one of the interesting things that I found out when I was doing my research, uh, my initial study, it's ongoing research, was um, I was publishing in the Journal of Human Trafficking, which was more of a sociological journal. Um, and in my conversations during that process, it came to light that all of those ideas we had about international sex trafficking, it was gang, you know, like organized crime and all of this was really being essentially disassembled because what the research was showing was it's actually very much poverty driven and individuals were, were more likely to be trafficked in all ways. I'm speaking of sex trafficking, but this would go, and I'm sure Catherine would agree, labor trafficking um, and other forms of trafficking. They were more likely to be trafficked by a family member or a friend. And oftentimes they were at least somewhat aware of the arrangement, even if it wasn't true understanding of the trafficking. And so we're talking about these really interconnected relational dynamics, which is one of the things that makes sex trafficking such a difficult crime to investigate, to identify sometimes, and to really understand because you have all of these relational dynamics. And so much of it seems to be driven by those early experiences, so that poverty basis. And then also, I've had a number of individuals where um, the trajectory has been their models and their exposure within their own environment. I see this more with um, what I would call like my old school kind of cons guys, the older gentlemen who are more in their like 60s than the younger generation. They will have grown up where that was modeled for them. Uncles, dad, mom. A lot of people were involved in the sex industry and oftentimes in, you know, those kind of pimping and prostitution kind of um, frameworks from, that you might have seen from like the 70s and things like that. Um, but nowadays, what has been really interesting and what is coming out in my work um, has been the involvement of street gangs. So as Catherine noted, you know, you can sell drugs once, you can sell guns once, but you can sell people more than once. And so it has become a very profitable endeavor. And so unlike organized crime, you see a level of organization, but it's at more of a street level and it's not as um, expansive as you would think an organized crime organization would be. But there has been a huge increase in involvement in street gangs um, with regards to the trafficking because of the profitability. And that very much I've been seeing in the past five plus 10 years or so. That goes right back to the point of how challenging it is to collect data sometimes, because you can't just say, well, let's pull down some federal data or statewide data on individuals who are charged with the crime of human trafficking, because human trafficking is coded as, as many different things in many different states, and sometimes trafficking-related cases might be prosecuted under gang-related charges or violence related to other kinds of criminal activities. And so it, it just uh, adds another layer of complexity to how do we really get our arms around it and how do we really have good, good data to go off of so that we can do excellent research on this topic. We can communicate findings clearly to many different audiences, whether they be academics or folks who are working in everyday jobs and who work in many different aspects of the industry in our country or other countries. It's not just a criminal justice or a mental health or a sociological issue. It ties into public health. It ties into social work practice. It ties into um, criminal practice. It ties into so many different, so many different fields. Oh goodness, the business industry. And everyone has their part to play in how to fight this particular crime, but sometimes we just don't, don't even realize how it all connects to one another and how it connects to every single industry. Thank you, Catherine, because what you're speaking about is one of the biggest hurdles with regards to this addressing sex trafficking and how we create interventions. We are so siloed 
We are so siloed in our work and you get into disagreements about who is going to be funding what based upon what label or oversight entity is dealing with that population. An example of that is I created with my colleague, Kurt, um, a essentially a nine-month intervention program for perpetrators of domestic sex trafficking. And this was back in 2012. To date, I have not been able to figure out funding or a way to pilot it because it turned into, well, is this going to be funded through sexual abuse-specific funds? Or is it going to be funded through gang? Or is it going to be funded through DV, domestic violence? Or And it turned into this whole interesting discussion about where's the funding coming from, because we are so siloed. And that was part of why I got interested in this field, in this specific population as well, because I recognize they cross so many different arenas. And we need to address and treat them with that level of specialty because of that. Absolutely. And that's where all of the anti-trafficking task forces come in, all of the different local organizations, community organizations. If you take a take a few solid minutes on the internet and do a little bit of Googling, I'm sure you'll be able to find something in your local area that is addressing this, but maybe addressing it from a way that you didn't even think of. But the, the strongest task forces, the strongest anti-trafficking coalitions are the ones that break down the silos, like Katie said, that bring in people from the business community, the criminal justice community, the mental health community, every single different aspect of our local neighborhood. Bring everyone together because maybe something's going on in your corner of the universe that you didn't realize was trafficking related, but someone else might have noticed it. So the strongest coalitions are the ones that bring together everyone to smash down those silos and start working on the topic and working on it productively and working on it together rather than focusing on just your particular area of it. So in that vein, right, what I what I hear is this is a an overwhelming problem that cannot be fixed, cannot be prevented when we operate in silos. So as we come to sort of our last question, and this goes to both of you, and I would love to just, you know, have a conversation with you both about it. What are, you know, thinking about getting rid of these silos, what are some of the ways we can prevent both victimization and perpetration of sex trafficking? I think when I look at both sides of this equation and both sides of this issue, first and foremost, it's early interventions. The longer I do this work, um, and it's been over 20 years now, I realize that so much stems from lack of opportunity and from poverty and from an inability to see alternative options. And it's one of the most important reasons why some of these really amazing grassroots efforts where people with lived experiences are coming into their own communities and creating change is so important. Because that's where it really is going to start. Because it's, for me, from that kind of macro systems, it has to start very early. And it has to start from a multidisciplinary, all-inclusive, and community-based level. Because I cannot walk into someone else's community and tell them how to fix or how to address what is specific to their community. I need to demonstrate humility and learn about that community if I was going to do something like that. And that, I think, is one of the major deficits oftentimes of NGOs and organizations like that, is they fail to really connect with the communities that they're trying to assist. And oftentimes they don't do that first initial read on what, like, your initial needs assessment on what's working, what's not, and what can we do to move that forward. And that's going to be individualized for each community. So I could make recommendations about my community, but it might not be applicable to Catherine in Florida 
or Alyssa, even in Southern California. Um, but to me, it's that very early intervention and investing in primary prevention, which then we see has the benefits moving forward. With regards to those that have already engaged in the behaviors, it's that supportive and tertiary prevention efforts. We need to be developing and recognizing that just simply incarcerating people for 50 years is not going to solve the problem. We need to move beyond the concept of punishment only and look at the balance between punishment and rehabilitation and the importance of rehabilitation for creating societies and communities that are healthy and integrated and recognize that we all make mistakes. Some are more harmful than others, but we all make mistakes and individuals should be provided with the opportunity to demonstrate and invest in change. And that requires research so we know what to intervene on, research so we know data collection and research so we know how to support people, and that we are doing interventions that are meaningful and not just checking a box. Yeah, so that was, you know, that was a great answer, Katie. Thank you. I don't know how much I can really add to this, but but I will try because that is the nature of this. So... I, I would say that, yes, we need to focus on primary prevention. We need to focus on the intersections where where individuals who maybe have experienced early trauma in their lives, or especially as we're talking about sex trafficking, that have maybe experienced sexual trauma early in their lives, to to take a look and see how that has altered someone's interpretations and assessments of healthy relationships and what's our risky situations and be able to, to help people to avoid unhealthy and risky situations. But also that's talking about trying to help people avoid victimization. The other way we can really tackle this is try to help people to not victimize others. And that goes into changing some of the societal opinions and viewpoints about some of the normality of these types of interactions and some of the commercial sex opinions, especially as it relates to children and to minors. Um, Because again, going back to that force, fraud, and coercion piece, uh, any minor who is engaged in any kind of commercial sexual activity is not engaging in in anything voluntarily. This is a, a form of human trafficking and it is a victimization piece. So if we can alter some of the some of the ideas behind why is it okay to to victimize children if we can if we can change some of those opinions I think we might be able to to get somewhere. And we have to recognize kind of as as Katie alluded to a second ago we have to recognize that I'm talking about this from the level of a policymaker and a former probation officer, from folks who, who have who have worked with individuals who've experienced trafficking and who have victimized others. We have to to stop and pause and listen to the folks who have been through it. They've been through it. They've made it out the other side. They've survived. They're they're potentially willing to share some information and some recommendations with us. And sometimes they're not willing to share recommendations with us. Sometimes they're not willing to even tell us that they have experienced trafficking in the past at all. That's that person's story, that person's history, and they're under no obligation to share it with any of us. But it's through the professional knowledge, the lived knowledge, the the information that survivors are willing to share and willing to advise I think is how we can move the field forward to figure out what what did happen in this individual's life or what can, what information can they share from their time in the field and how can we use this and how can we take this information to to help other people and the the more that we can just support our kids love our kids take care of our kids and um and help them to have healthy, secure relationships with safe adults, then quite frankly, we're going to help not just individuals who are impacted by sex trafficking, but individuals who are impacted by all different kinds of abuse. It's a whole lot harder to abuse somebody who is going to go right back home and talk to somebody that they know and love and trust and to tell them about something that made them uncomfortable. It's a lot harder to abuse that individual than it is somebody who may not have anybody paying attention to them back home. So invest in our kids and um, help them to invest in one another and invest in attitudes of change for themselves and for their, for their future. 
Thank you, Catherine. You bring up such a hugely important piece, um, particularly with the listening, the listening to the survivors. And I'm going to throw in also listening to the perpetrators, because I have learned more about sex trafficking from simply having an open ear, being empathetic and listening to my clients. And you're right. It really, uh, just go back to the kids. I have a five-year-old and I hear you about all of that stuff and ensuring, go talk to a trusted adult and prioritize the children is really a huge prevention effort right then and there. I'm sure that's hard to answer because there's so much, like this is such a huge topic that I'm sure we didn't even, we started to scratch the surface today, but you know, if folks wanted to walk away with one thing, what would that be? I would say to be open to learn and to not have a false sense of security that now you, now you know a little bit of what human trafficking is and um, a little bit of what sex trafficking is in particular. And now now you know exactly what you need to do to protect yourself and your family and the people that you love. I'm, I hope that you've learned something from this podcast, but know that there's just more to know. There's no, there's no end-all, be-all list of apps to stay away from or websites to stay away from or one end-all, be-all training to hand to the kids or to hand to colleagues. Uh, we, we learn and we change and we change opinions and we, we grow as the data grows. So... The more that, that anybody can stay engaged with this topic, stay engaged with the, the research that's coming out, the information that's coming out, new, new trainings that are coming out, uh, who knows, based on what, what the data says, everything we might know about trafficking might change in five years. And I'm going to have to grow and change with the times just as anybody else will. So my, my big takeaway that I want everyone to, to have is that keep learning and keep an open mind. And I'm just going to second that because Catherine said it beautifully. Um, I was going to say something along the lines of don't assume. Don't assume that you know what someone's experience is. Don't assume that something isn't happening or that something is happening. Learn, be open to learning and recognize that this type of crime is not something that is happening elsewhere. As Catherine very much emphasized earlier, it's happening everywhere. And the more you're aware of it and the more education that you provide, particularly for our youth and safety for our youth, those are some of those steps that will help us reach our final goals of prevention of sexual violence and sex trafficking. Thank you both so much for that. I I think I'm going to think of a lot of questions after I digest this episode um, because it's just been so informative and interesting and thank you both for bringing such important perspectives to us yes absolutely you know as you said be open to learning um, I learned so much from both of you today and I know that our listeners will as well so thank you so much for taking the time it's my pleasure again thank you for for having us and for allowing us the the space to to talk through some of the information some of the myths some of the the details some of what we can take away from here it's uh it's excellent to have the opportunity thank you thank you yes the opportunity and Catherine and I very much enjoy uh, talking and educating and helping people understand this issue and from very different perspectives as I'm sure everyone noticed I'm more of that clinical perpetration and she's more of the survivor law enforcement so um, but that I think in and of itself reflects much of what needs to happen to move forward prevention efforts is that we have people from similar and complementary disciplines that are working together at moving things forward. And so again, that collaboration, that's another thing I'd say to take away, the importance of collaboration and being open to other viewpoints. Well, again, thank you so much. Um, it really was a pleasure to have you on.
Thank you for listening to Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast, a part of Article 3 Podcasting Network. Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast is written and hosted by Alexa Sardina and Alyssa Ackerman. All episodes are produced and edited by Christopher Antico. We would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast and answer any questions that you might have about the topics we've covered or any questions you have about us. You can contact us at beyondfearpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all other podcasting platforms. Head to our website at www.beyondfearpodcast.com for blog posts, resources, readings, and episode transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at Fear Crimes, Instagram at Beyond Fear Podcast, and like and follow our Facebook group called Beyond Fear the Sex Crimes Podcast.